39 and before chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 40 from verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom will you liken God, or what likeness compare him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and it is inhabitants, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Now let me pray for us before we look further at this passage together. Heavenly Father, this passage speaks of your greatness, uh, your wisdom, your power. Uh, it lifts our eyes to gaze upon your character and your majesty. Please, we pray, may each of us here today be struck with a re renewed sense of your greatness, and may that in turn move us to trust you more, to bring us home ultimately to Zion, the heavenly city, the new creation. Amen. Uh, do you sometimes feel that God has forgotten you or that God doesn't care? Are there times when your hope in God's promises wilts in the fire of trying circumstances? 
Are there times when you feel spiritually weary on your Christian journey? Do you sometimes wonder what on earth God is doing? Why would he let this happen to me? Perhaps you're feeling like that at the moment. Well, Isaiah chapter 40 is written for you. But even if you don't feel like that at the moment, this is a chapter to tune into nevertheless. Because the day will inevitably come when you do feel like that, and it's good to be prepared. In its original context, this message came to a people who had lost all hope. Uh, God had made staggering promises of blessing to them, and through them to bless all the peoples of the world. But now, as a result of their sin, and as God had forewarned them, his blessing has turned to curse, and his judgment has fallen heavy upon them. Only a small remnant of God's people left, and they are now languishing in exile. Uh, They're in Babylon, far from their land, and far from their capital city, from Zion, from Jerusalem. And so that shattered, traumatized remnant in exile, any remaining hope has now given way to despair. And the prophet Isaiah articulates the complaint rising in their hearts in verse 27. He says this, Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, And my cause is disregarded by my God. Do you see what they're saying? My way is hidden from the Lord. They believe there is no way back. They are now outside God's plans for them, or so they think. They feel that all is now lost. They're in a foreign land. Does the God of Israel have any sway or say in the land of Babylon? Is he impotent here? They thought their way was hidden from their God. And they also thought their cause is disregarded by their God. They conclude that God has now given up on them. They think God no longer cares. And as we have seen in previous weeks, the voice of the prophets comes to his people. And the voice of the prophets is not just one of judgments. Because the prophets also promise restoration beyond God's judgment. Uh, Their message of judgment is tempered by their message of hope. Uh, Here again is the diagram we looked at in previous weeks. I can see, of course, this uh, depressing line of decline where Israel wilts under the judgment of God and slowly incurs disaster after disaster as he forewarned. But, uh, and the prophets warn of this and declare that this will happen because of the people's sin. But in contrast to that, there is also at the same time this trajectory of hope going up, which the prophets also bring. It's not just judgment, but also a message of hope. And that message of hope is there to counter the despair of the people. And as we saw last week, uh, it's into such a bleak situation of despair that one of the greatest Old Testament promises of rescue is made in Isaiah chapter 40. And through Isaiah, God speaks word of comfort to his despairing people. He has not abandoned them. He will still be true to his promises. We saw last week, their sin has been paid for, he says to them, and he will come to his people to rescue them. 
We saw last week, he said, his arm is mighty to save and his heart is tender to care. So last week we saw in this first section of Isaiah chapter 40 that we saw what God promised he would do, that he would rescue and restore. And this week in verses 12 onwards, we see the God who will do it. In this passage, we have one of the great Old Testament contributions to the doctrine of God. You see, if our Christian hope is to be securely grounded, it must be anchored not just in what God has said, but also in who God is. Not just in what he has promised, but what God is also like. The bedrock of Christian hope is not just what God has said, but also the God who has said it. And so to those shattered depressed exiles, and also to us, Isaiah now lifts our eyes to gaze on the greatness of God. And we see God as he really is. We have a renewed vision of what God is actually like. And as we do so, problems are seen in perspective. The vast greatness of God shrinks problems down to their true size. Uh, There is not time to consider every detail of this passage, but we will pick up on three main themes about God's character. We're going to see, firstly, uh, God's incomparable greatness. Secondly, his incomparable wisdom. And thirdly, his incomparable power. So, firstly, uh, God's incomparable greatness. Uh, Verse 12 launches a whole string of questions which God himself poses to his people. And they confront them and us with the vast greatness of God. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Well, how much water can you hold, do you think, in your hand? Let me experiment here. Just... uh... Well, I think I'd give about 10 millilitres on a conservative estimate. 10 millimetres in the, in the hollow of my hand. How much can God hold in the hollow of his hand? He can hold all the waters. Did you know that if you put all the oceans of the earth together, it probably equates to 321 million cubic miles of water and yet God can hold that in the hollow of his hand verse 12 continues or with the breadth of his hand mark off the heavens what is the breadth of our hand maybe about 10 centimeters but God, God's hand extends from one end of the heavens to the other Now, of course, God doesn't actually have physical hands. God is spirit. But this is a picture to help us understand how vastly great God is. Verse 12 continues. Or weigh the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance. How much can you weigh on your kitchen scales? Maybe a kilogram of stuff. Or your bathroom scales. Maybe too much when you get on it in the morning, you say to yourself. 
but God can weigh all the mountains of the world in his scales. You know, it's estimated that just one mountain of 2,000 meters in height would weigh 20 billion tons. Just one mountain. And yet God weighs all the mountains of the world on his scales. That is how great God is. And therefore, you see, when we feel that God has forgotten us, is part of the problem, actually, that we have forgotten how great God is, how big he is. But Isaiah doesn't just talk about his greatness, but he goes on to talk about his wisdom, his incomparable wisdom. Verse 13. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? It's probably helpful to understand a little bit of background to the situation at the time for the exiles. They were in Babylon, and in the Babylonian religion, the creator god was called Marduk. But in the Babylonian religion, it was believed that even Marduk had to consult with A, that's spelled E-A, the God that was all-wise. Marduk could not create on his own. The pagan gods had to work in committee. And yet God, true creator, needs to consult with no one else, including you and me. For us as people, uh, of course, life is all about learning. Uh, We start off knowing nothing, and everything has to be learned. By nature, we don't even know how to tie our shoelaces, and I'm all too aware of that every morning when my kids go out to soccer training. And of course, the more we learn, the more we realize we have so much to learn. And of course, we do need to ask for advice, and we do need to read up on things to find out. But that is not the case for God. God never needs to ask for advice. God doesn't need a planning committee. God doesn't need Google. God knows everything, past, present, and future. And he knows what he's doing, and he knows what's best. So we've seen God's incomparable greatness, his incomparable wisdom. Thirdly, his incomparable power. Uh, To the Jewish exiles, uh, the Babylonian gods seemed to reign supreme. Now, it's also helpful to know a bit more background at this point, because in the ancient Near East, the thinking was that each people group had their own gods, and those gods reigned and held sway over the territory of that people. And by now, the exiled Israelites had no doubt concluded that they were caught in the iron grip of the Babylonian gods. Uh, The Babylonians were the undefeated superpower of the day. And the God of Israel, it seemed, had no sway or say in the land of Babylon. And yet, with dripping sarcasm, Isaiah reminds those exiles that the idols of Babylon are not rulers over man, but actually the product of man. These idols are so powerless that they are even reliant on the skill of the craftsman not to topple over. How pathetic. 
Look at verse 18. To whom will you compare them? To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman crafts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. These man-made gods, these idols, they're powerless, they're pathetic. And yet still today as then, we pay homage to idols in our lives. And we think that they can save us or bless us. God has incomparable power over the idols. But he also has incomparable power over people. Verse 22. He that is God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. Verse 23. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, and then he blows on them, and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Do you see? The powerful nations of the world, to our eyes, they look incredibly powerful and formidable. But in God's eyes, they're like grasshoppers. Uh, The ancient world had kings who seemed to rule with absolute power, but their reign in reality was so short. And when God blows on them, they're gone. We ourselves are no less prone to that fear of people, aren't we? And the the tension is captured well in the title of a Christian book called this, When People Are Big and God Is Small. When People Are Big and God Is Small. It's a good title which seems to sum up how we tend to get things totally out of perspective and upside down. Instead of seeing God as big and people as small, we see people as being big and scary and God as being too small to do anything. And yet, the Lord is incomparably powerful over all people. So, Isaiah has painted an amazing picture of God And it acts to counter spiritual despair and despondency. Uh, We look not only to God's promises, but to the great God who has promised them. God is incomparable. He is unique. He is the one and only God who reigns supreme over all. Verse 27 again. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. So what does God require of his people? What does God require of us in response to this? Verse 29, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. 
They will soar on the wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. And they will walk and not grow faint. What are we to do? We are to maintain our hope in the Lord. Uh, We wait patiently and expectantly for him to fulfill his promises in his time. You see, waiting in hope means we live now with lives orientated to the return of Jesus. Uh, We live in this world with one eye on the life in the world to come. God is incomparably great. God is incomparably wise. God is incomparably powerful. And he will have therefore no difficulty in fulfilling his promises when the time comes. From our side, we can trust him to one day finally rescue us from our greatest enemies, from sin and death. And as we look to the Lord in the present, he will give us the strength we lack and the perspective we need to keep moving forward. He grants us grace for each day. There are times when we ask, where is God in this? Why has God let this happen to me? And there are many factors that can erode our hope in God's promises. It may be the trying and testing times of life circumstances. We ask, why is this happening to me? It may be the appeal and power of the world and its ideas. Our desires to live for God and his kingdom start to cool. Or it may be the scorn and derision of the world. We start to wonder if it's worth maintaining a Christian witness. Did you know that Isaiah chapter 40 verse 13, which talks of God's uh, great wisdom, is quoted in two places in the New Testament. And in each case, it's to assure people of God's wisdom and that his purposes will prevail. Uh, The first place where Isaiah 40 verse 13 is quoted is in Romans chapter 11 verse 34. And this comes at the end of a whole section uh, starting back in chapter 9 of Romans. And of course, what's it all about? Well, it's addressing the doubts about what God is doing in the world. Why have the majority of the Jews rejected the gospel? And the point is, God is working out his purposes. The point is, God is incomparably great and powerful. His ways are not our ways. He is incomparably wise. And therefore the challenge of Romans 9 to 11 is this. Trust him to fulfill his purposes in his time. Here is Romans 11 verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? There it is, the passage from Isaiah. Uh, The second use of Isaiah 40 verse 13 comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is addressing cynicism against the gospel. Uh, To the Greek people, uh, the gospel seemed like absolute foolishness. This message of a man dying on a cross, it seems so absurd Uh, so inglorious and so weak to the Greek mind. And to counter this, the point is made that although although the gospel may seem like foolishness to some, it's actually the secret wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7, it says this, 
Uh, No, we speak of God's secret wisdom. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for they, if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And in support of the case, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 13 is then quoted in verse 16. It says this, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. God's wisdom is incomparable. God's ways are not our ways. All God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. And God will fulfill his promises and his purposes in his time. So you see, uh, we can be confident that the day will finally arrive when God will bring his rescue to fruition. And God is working out his purposes in his time. And whilst we wait in hope, we can also be confident that God will also work out his purposes, not just on the grand scale, but also in the micro scale of our everyday lives. When we have that thought in our mind, why has God allowed this to happen to me? We would do well to remember that God's wisdom is greater than ours. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Of course, God's wisdom is always going to be trumping ours. We don't know what is best, and our perspective inevitably and our knowledge is going to be limited. Uh, Timothy Keller, in his book, uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, has the following helpful insight, and I quote, Because of God's infinite majesty and wisdom... We expect to not understand all his ways. It wouldn't make sense that everything he does would make sense. How could an infinite, beingless being always manage our lives in a way that makes sense to us? We don't even understand other human beings fully. So how could we expect to understand everything God does? He puts the point well, doesn't he? If we don't even fully understand our spouses or our best friend, how could we possibly understand everything that God does? But he will give us the strength we need as we look to him. God is incomparably great. He's incomparably wise. And he's incomparably powerful. Uh, John Calvin has a great little passage in one of his books in which he takes the truth of God's greatness, his sovereign rule over all, and he applies it to Christians. And he says this, and I quote, This, I say, is his comfort, speaking about Christians, that his heavenly Father so embraces all things under his power, so governs them at will by his nod, so regulates them by his wisdom, that nothing takes place save according to his appointment." Ignorance of God's sovereign control over all is the greatest of all miseries, and the knowledge of it is the highest happiness. C.H. Spurgeon also summarizes it well. He says this, When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which 
you lay your head. God is incomparably great. He's incomparably wise. He's incomparably powerful. He can be trusted to bring his people home on the highway to that heavenly city, glorious Zion. And he will do it in his time. Meanwhile, we can trust him as we wait expectantly. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing glimpse of your greatness. Uh, your, great, your greatness, your wisdom, your power. Uh, help us, we pray, to walk each day, never losing sight of it. Uh, may our vision of you grow larger and clearer. And may our vision of our problems and the things which threaten us and worry us uh, take on their appropriate scale, we pray. And help us to keep waiting and living as people of hope and living out the gospel every day. Amen.